Amen. Thank you, Evan, and guys and gals for leading us. We do appreciate it. If you have your copy of Scripture, find your place with me in Mark's Gospel, chapter number 2. We have been on a journey through Mark's Gospel, and we find ourselves today in the opening verses of chapter number 2. So if you have your place there, follow along as I read the first 12 verses, Mark's Gospel, chapter number 2. The Bible says, beginning in verse 1, When he, that is Jesus, had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug a hole, or when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or say, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Well, chapter number 2 starts a series of controversies and conflicts that Jesus has with the religious establishment of his day. And it has been said that if there is no conflict in your ministry, it's probably because there is no content in your message. And of course, Jesus' message was filled with content. He was the content himself. So we're going to look at these controversies over the course of the next several weeks. Today is the first one, but I want us to focus on maybe some of the implications and some of the underlying factors and results of the controversy in these first few verses rather than focusing in on the conflict and controversy itself. I want to speak to you today on this subject. When Jesus is in the house, because notice what the Bible says there in verse number 2. I love this. You may want to underline it. He was where? He was at home. So the first question we must ask ourselves is, is Jesus at home in your house? Is Jesus at home when we meet as a church? Now you understand that really there is no such thing as the house of the Lord in the New Testament. The physical building or structure in which we meet is not the house of God. According to the New Testament, the house of God are 
those who have placed their faith in him, those who make up the living body of Christ. That's where he resides. And do you know the most valuable commodity that we have as the people of God is just this. It's the presence of God among us. If we do not have His presence when we come together, then all we are is really a social club. There ought to be something about it when the people of God come together to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And here's something that I'm so grateful to God that we hear on a regular basis. When you have folk come, we love it when we have first-time guests. We just do. We hope we can roll out the red carpet for you. But here's what spiritually perceptive people tell me when they come to grace. They normally say something like this, Pastor Richie, we just sense something different when we come to grace. We just sense the presence of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit when we're at grace. And do you know, church, we need to work at that. We need to make sure that Jesus Christ is sure enough at home at Grace Church Boniface. So let's look at some of the implications of that. What are some of the things that transpire when and if Jesus is in the house? What will take place at your house if Jesus is free to be himself, to be at home there? I mean, you know how you feel when you go somewhere and people just make you feel at home? Man, when, I, when I'm at home, I can be myself. You know what I'm saying? I, I love when I'm at my house to be at home, to be able to sit down in my easy chair, kick off my boots, put the recliner up, and even unsnap my britches. Son, you know, you know you're at home when you can do that, you know? Be careful if you invite the preacher over for lunch because if he feels too much at home, you're liable to see more of the preacher than you ever wanted to see. You know what I'm saying? Is Jesus at home at Grace Church Boniface? That's the burning question. Notice what this passage of Scripture says. I want to say two things about that, and you think, whoo, good, a short sermon today. Then tell you that under each one of those two things, there's about six or eight things that I want to include. So here we go. When Jesus is in the house, number one, when Jesus is home, there is a danger to avoid. You know, there are assets and liabilities to having Jesus at home. There's assets and there's liabilities when you have the presence of Christ in your midst. Let's look at a few of those. What are, what are some of the dangers that we must avoid because Jesus is at home at Grace Church Boniface? Well, I think this scripture bears out again two things. Number one, the first danger that we must avoid, church, is becoming content. You know, contentment can be a good thing or contentment can be a bad thing. One of the things that has been the spiritual death of a lot of churches is being content in the presence of Jesus. So the first danger that we must avoid when and if Jesus is at home among us is the danger of being content. Now let me show you the negative side of being content because the scripture again bears it out. 
What is the characteristic of being negatively content if Jesus is at home? Well, notice what the scripture says. The scripture says there in verse number 6, but some of the scribes, you may want to underline this word, some of the scribes were sitting there. I think it's interesting that Mark uses that because normally when he describes something that's going on in the synagogue, he doesn't use that type of terminology. But about these scribes, he says, they were sitting there. So here's the first mark of someone who has become content, ho-hum, in the presence of the Son of God. They just simply come and sit. They just come and sit. Now can I say to you, one of the things I love about Grace Church is the fact that we've kind of declared war on pew sitting. As a matter of fact, we don't even have pews. I'm even a little bit nervous about having these comfortable chairs in the house. You know what I'm saying? If it were up to me, I'd just go out and cut a split rail fence, Jerry, and let us sit on a split rail fence so we don't get comfortable and content just coming to sit. You see, being a believer is not just about coming to a meeting. I mean, my goodness, if you want to go to a meeting, I can list off several organizations where you can just go to meetings until you are blue in the face. It's not just about coming and sitting, but it's about other things. And here's what we try to do at Grace. You may want to write these two words down. Here are these scribes probably been planted there by the religious establishment from Jerusalem to keep an eye on this radical new preacher that's going all through Galilee and preaching this radical new message. We know that because right here in these verses are the trumped up charges that they used at his phony trial in order to crucify him. Charges that flow right out of this context. So they probably were phonies, they were probably plants, and Mark says they, they just come and sit. Now, here's how it is that we combat just coming and sitting at Grace Church. Two words, write them down. Number one, the word involvement. Involvement. You see, Christianity is not just mental assent to propositional truths. If that's the case, then you're like a one-legged man. You can't get anywhere on one leg. But you see, it's more than about that. It's not just faith and propositional truths. Yes, it includes that, but it's also doing something with those truths. James says it like this. He says, faith without works is what? Dead. So the other foot is involvement in ministry. So can I ask you a question? How is it that you are involved in the mission and ministry of Grace Church and in kingdom work, because if not, then you're just like a scribe. You're just coming and sitting, and I'm telling you, Grace Church knows that we can't produce disciples if all we're going to do is let folk come and sit. So we don't want you coming and sitting. I'll never forget, the first time I walked into Grace Church right down here, uh, right up the road on Waukesha in that little building that's now the Cedar Tree Ministry or whatever it is, through the influence of some students like Kenzie Joe Norman who said, you need to come check out this church, Dr. Allen. I came and checked it out. I came and sat for one Sunday. And the next Sunday they said, hey, you got to do something. So I was in a pulpit second Sunday. It's amazing. So if you're here today, this is your first time, your first time guest, this is the only time we're going to let you come and sit. 
Look out, next Sunday you might be doing something. But we try to push folk to that because disciples are not produced when all they do is come and sit. Involvement, number one. Investment, number two. In whom are you investing? In what are you investing? Folk who come and sit know nothing about either one of these two. They just simply come and sit. They're not involved. They're not invested. Now, stop it on pause right there. I'm going to have more to say about that, but let me get you to the second characteristic of those who just come or those who are content. Number one, they're content just to come and sit. Number two, the content have a critical spirit. Have you ever noticed that about folk who are not doing anything? And here were the scribes just sitting there. And here they were critical of the Lord Jesus Christ. And can I say to you that on the basis of over 30 years of pastoral ministry, the greatest critics of the local church are the ones who are not doing anything. They're not involved. They're not invested, but yet they are the greatest critic of the local church. Oh boy, listen, we've got a ton of them out there. Most of these Monday morning armchair quarterbacks that shoot warning shots across our bow after they watch our services on a weekly basis aren't doing anything. They're not even involved in a local church. And can I say to you guys, I like our way of doing things better than your way of doing nothing. That's all there is to it. Those who are doing nothing, those who are just coming and sitting, will always end up gravitating toward being a critical person. Here's how being involved combats a critical spirit. You ever notice that when people are involved in something, they want it to succeed and they want it to be good? So the more involved you are, the more ownership you have, the more you're going to do everything in your power to make sure that it's successful. When you're invested in something, have you ever noticed that where your treasure is, there your heart is also? Notice, where your treasure is, there your heart is also? If you're a faithful steward and you're investing in the kingdom through Grace Church, I can promise you, you have a vested interest in making sure that she's effective and that she's fruitful and that she is successful. Well, how many of you remember from the last century the great comedian George Burns? Do y'all remember George Burns? Yeah, the older crowd remembers George Burns. George Burns lived to be, what, 101 years old? And I watched George Burns, and, and you understand, George Burns, I don't know about his spiritual condition, but I do know he was no theologian, right? He was no church growth expert, to say the least. And I was watching George Burns one time. He was on Johnny Carson or something like that, being interviewed as he always is. And the interview took a certain turn about playing charity events. And here's what George Burns said. He said, I'll never play another charity event as long as I live. And the interviewer was shocked. He said, well, tell me why. What do you have against playing charity events? He said, oh, it's very plain. Let me explain to you. He says, when I go in and I perform to a paying crowd, people have bought a ticket for $20 or $25, 
He said those people come in because they are invested in the show. They want to have a good time. He said, but when I play a charity event where the house is filled with people who didn't cost them anything to be there, all I get is heckled for an hour and a half. He said, so I am not playing any more charity events because this is what he said. The critical spirit always resides with those who are not invested. Son, that's pretty good church growth right there, isn't it? He needs to write a book on that. And churches that are content to just let people come to the meeting and sit, all they're going to produce is a bunch of grouchy, old, you fill in the blank. <laughs> You're reading my mind, aren't you? Is he going to say it? Is he going to say it? <laughs> whatever. Whatever it is you, <laughs> you want to fill in that blank, that's what you'll produce. So guess what? We love you too much to let you sour on the vine. By God, if you hang around here long, we're going we're gonna to put you into action somehow or another because those who are not put into action tend to sour and become critical. Notice what else the Bible says, where there's a danger to avoid. When Jesus is at home, number one, it's the danger of being content, but number two, it's the danger of being condemned. The danger of being condemned. Check this out. I want you to turn back with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 11, and I want you to see this. Notice what Jesus says as he talks about Capernaum. Capernaum was his Galilean ministry headquarters. It was his base of operation. It was his home. And you see, that's what's different between the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John. The Synoptics record most of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. The Gospel of John focuses on Jerusalem and Jerusalem alone. But notice what it is that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse number 23, and you, Capernaum, wait a minute, this is where he was at home. Yeah, look what he says. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Hello? Son, there's a liability to living in the presence of Jesus. And that liability is the danger of becoming so content with His royal presence until we're condemned after living in His presence. Boy, I'd like to know just how many folk end up busting hell wide open who grew up in Baptist churches. How many folk go to hell who go to the meeting every Sunday and have just become content? Danger of all dangers is taking His presence for granted and never doing anything about it. The danger of being condemned in his presence. Notice what he says to those scribes and Pharisees. And notice the characteristics of those who are condemned even though they sit in the presence of Jesus. Well, number one, verse number eight says, he sees their faults. Look at this. Immediately, one of Mark's key words, Jesus aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves. He saw it. He saw their faults. Have you ever felt like in church that your life was on public display? Son, if Jesus is here, that's exactly what will happen. Sometimes we get timid because in the presence of Jesus, it's like our sign, our life is a billboard sign with all of our sins written on it. Because that's just what happens in His presence. No matter 
how, how we try to hide it, he can see through it. And he saw their faults. But notice something he does. Thank God he doesn't just see our faults and condemn us there. He showed them the facts. And what are the facts? Hey, the facts can overcome the faults. Notice what the facts are in verses 7 through 10. Number one, he showed them his identity. Verse number 7, they said, Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now look, they're on to something here. They're on a logical pathway. And if they would have just stuck to the logical pathway that they themselves plotted, they would have probably arrived at a good conclusion. Here it is. Oh, this is a good logical syllogism. I wish I had my whiteboard up here. I would write it in the form of a logical syllogism. Since I don't, you can. Write it like this on the back of your outline. Here's a logical syllogism. It's like a math formula with words. And it's in the area of truth and a philosophy and epistemology. So you know a nerd like me digs that stuff. So here we go. No, notice their logical syllogism. Write this on the first line. Only God forgives sin. And that's right, is it not? I mean, sin has to be forgiven by the one against whom it was ultimately perpetrated. And who is sin against primarily? God. It's an offense to his holy nature and character. David, when it was all said and done, after he'd committed great sins against Bathsheba and her husband, when it all boils down is what David said, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. So the only one who can forgive is the one whom ultimately sin has been against, and that's God Almighty. So they're on the right path. Top line on your logical syllogism. Here you go. Only God forgives sin. Second line, right immediately under that, and line it all up. Jesus forgives sin. Is that not what he said? He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now draw a line under that, just like it's a mathematical equation. Put three dots out there in a the pyramid, that means therefore. Here's all they had to do. You see how close they were? This is how close they were, and so many people miss heaven when they're that close to Jesus on a weekly, sometimes daily basis. Only God forgives sin. Jesus forgives sin. Therefore, Jesus is, say it with me, <laughs> Jesus is, do you see how close they were? All they had to do was follow the path of their own logical reasoning, and they would have arrived at the conclusion, hey, this man's forgiven sin. Therefore, this man is God. So he showed them the facts. Yes, I am. I am God incarnate. And that's the conclusion of that logical syllogism. If that weren't enough, here's how he also proved his identity. Look what, look what verse number 8 says. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that, that way within themselves, said to them, what did he just do right there? What did it say, Evan? Read their he read their minds. Who has the ability to do that other than sister so-and-so at the psychic shop in Dothan? <laughs> you know I'm being facetious. Only one can read your mind, and that's God. Hey, man, have you ever been that way? Have you ever had your mind and your heart read by God? What does it do to you? 
lets you know that the one with whom we have to do, everything is laid bare before him. So he shows them the facts. I am God. Number two, not only does he show them his identity, but he also shows them his authority. And what is his authority? Well, his authority is he, as God, has the authority to discharge, dispatch, do away with your sin. <laughs> he does. Now check this out. Notice what he did. It's sometimes hard to follow the way we read it, but notice what he did. He said, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk? But check this out. But so that you may know. Do you see that? This is a purpose clause. I'm fixing to do something so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins. Then he turns to the paralytic and he says this. Now I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. It's kind of a, a miracle in two stages. The first thing he did was told the old boy's sins are forgiven. All the conflict. He reads their mind. And now in order to prove to them that he has authority to do something that you can't see immediately with the naked eye, he says, I'm going to show you something that you can see with your naked eye. And he said, get up, take your pallet and go home. Do you understand? You see stuff like that and you are more accountable than folk who haven't seen stuff like that. You understand why these folk were condemned in the presence of Jesus? Hey, there is a danger of being a part of something like Grace Church. Did you know that? You don't have an excuse. There is no alibi left. If you have been in the presence of Jesus, then friend, you better come to some good conclusions. Number one, of who he is and just what he can do. His identity and his authority. So here you go. When Jesus is at home, there's a danger to avoid. Now, here's the good part of this. Let's put the other shoe on. Can we for a little while? All right, here we go. Not only when Jesus is home is there a danger to avoid, but when Jesus is home, there is a delight to be enjoyed. A delight to be enjoyed. Here's, you see, we done looked at the liability part. Now let's look at the, at the, thank you just left me. Thank you. You saw me. You read my mind. <laughs> you can see I was grappling. Where's that word? What's the opposite of liability? I don't have any of them. All I have is liabilities. <laughs> asset. Asset. Here's the asset part of having Jesus at home at Grace Church. Man, I'm so grateful to God that we are KJ's home church. But hey, how about being Jesus' home church where he is at home? That's pretty cool, isn't it? And you see, it's our responsibility to cultivate an environment where he is at home, where he can come here and do what he wants to do, where he can come here and be who he wants to be. He can come here and say what he wants to say because he's at home at Grace Church. Here's the delight to be enjoyed when you're part of a place where Jesus is at home. Number one, to hear truth discussed. Man, what a delight. What a delight to hear truth discussed. Check this out. Look with me in, in, in verse number two. Many were gathered together 
See, hey, hey, one of the things, if Jesus is in the house, it's going to attract a crowd, isn't it not? Will attract a crowd. So that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and look what he was doing. He was speaking to them what? The word of God. It's a different word here than to preach. It's a word that means just to have casual conversation about the word of God. So when Jesus gets a group together, what's he going to talk about? He's going to talk about the word. And here these folk were, they had the delight of hearing the Son of God discuss the Word of God. Can you imagine anything more lively? Because His Word is spirit and life. It's amazing to me how some folk can take God's Word and use it as a, as a tool to fight insomnia and put folk to sleep with it. It's amazing to me. There's even a commercial on TV. There's a commercial that talks about that. I, Heather and I saw it the other night on our TV in Dothan. It's listening to somebody read God's word in order to put folk asleep. I thought, dear God in heaven. I mean, if I were the Lord, I would smite them and cause all their kids to be born naked or something. You know what I mean? Use it. How can somebody use the word? I, Heather won't even let me study it past 9 o'clock. Since they'll pump me up. I'll be preaching at 2 o'clock in the morning to her and Louie and whoever else will listen. Pumps me up. It doesn't put me to sleep. Check this out. Jesus was discussing the word. Now, write down these three words under that. Why does Jesus talk about the word? Why does he preach the word? Why does he teach the word every time he gets two or three gathered together? Every time he gets an audience, what does he do? He breaks out God's word. Number one, write these three words down. We've talked about them over and over because that's his priority. It's his priority. How many times already in the Gospel of Matthew have we seen him reject being cast into the role of a miracle-working healer? That's not his priority. Thank God he still does that, but that's not his priority. His priority is what? The Word of God. Number two, purpose. Write this word down. It's his purpose. He said in Mark chapter 1, For this is why I came in order to preach God's Word. If Grace Church doesn't have anything else, we had better let Jesus have the full right of doing what is His priority and His purpose, and that is teaching the Word of God. But not only priority and purpose, but write this word down, power. Because it is the power of God, Cliff, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Hey, I can tell you one thing. If we stop having a focus on the preaching and teaching of God's Word, we'll see nobody miraculously transformed. It's only God's Word that can do that. So what is one of the delights of being in a place where Jesus' is home is hearing God's Word discussed? Number two, not only is it, is it a delight to hear truth discussed, but it's also a delight to have needs diagnosed. To have needs diagnosed. Now here's the deal. Do you know that sin has so perverted your way of thinking that you don't even know what your needs are? Did you know that? That's part of the effect of sin in our lives. Notice how it comes through in the text. These four boys carried their friend to Jesus because they thought the most pressing need in his life was for him to be able to get up and walk. Jesus looks at him and he didn't say first, get up and walk. What did he say? Son, your sins are forgiven. And you know I see this happen so many times. 
I see folk barrage in heaven with a laundry list of what they perceive their needs to be. And God doesn't respond. You know why? Because a priority with God is probably not what you have prioritized yourself. And for, to push these secondary wants and desires and needs on God is like going to a cardiologist. And that cardiologist saying to you, I've got bad news. You've got five severe blockages in some of the most critical widow-making arteries in your heart. And unless we do something about it today, you probably won't be around next week for us to have a chance at it. That cardiologist told you that and you said to him, Doc, man, I appreciate it. Thank you for, for your diagnosis, for that word. That, that has enlightened me. I understand now why I'm feeling sluggish, but tell you what. I've got an ingrown toenail that's about to kill me. First thing I want to do is I want to get this ingrown toenail taken care of. We'll talk about dude, heart issues a little bit later. How foolish would that be? The doctor would say, your toenail, let me amputate your whole foot from your knee down. That'd be the best thing to do. We've got to handle this heart issue now. And so many times, folk come to God with a laundry list of what they think their needs are. And can I say to you, the first thing you ought to say to God is, God, Diagnose my heart. Search me and see if there's some wicked way in me, so said the psalmist. And God, let's deal with my issues in the order of priority. Let's start at the top. But too many times we want to start at the bottom and work up. Jesus diagnosed this old boy's most pressing need. Can I say to you, your most pressing need today probably has nothing to do with the physical realm. It don't have anything to do with health. It don't have anything to do with money. It don't have anything to do with relationships other than your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's your most pressing need. And I promise you, when you're in His presence, that's what He's concerned about. So many people say, well, God didn't do that. That's way down the list. Why don't you let him be at home in your life, diagnose your most pressing need, take care of that, and watch everything else fall in line. Well, it's a delight when you're in a place where Jesus is at home to have needs diagnosed. Are you open to that? Are you open to putting your needs, what you perceive to be your needs, aside and saying, God, here's my life, diagnose it. And let's deal with it. Well, number next, not only is it a delight to have needs diagnosed, but it's a delight to see determined people. To see determined people. These old boys were determined to get to Jesus. Did you see that? The Bible says they picked up their friend and they were carrying him on a stretcher. They were taking this old boy to Jesus. They knew he's the only one that could solve his condition. They get to Jesus and wait a minute, there's a problem. How much of a problem does it take to deter you from going to Jesus? Man, I watch folk, and I can tell Jesus is not on their list of priorities. Because as the old adage goes, five drops of rain to keep ten Baptists home from, on Sunday morning. I mean, I mean, have you ever noticed people give you a, a, a list of reasons and excuses why they can't be faithful? If Jesus is in the house, son, there ain't no good reason in Bonifay why you ought not have your honey here. Am I right? There's nothing to compete with that. 
There's nothing. And it's so refreshing to see you, some, deli- some people who are determined no matter what, no matter what, you're going to get here. You're going to get to where he is, to where truth is being discussed, where needs are being diagnosed. That's so refreshing. Hey, man, give me 50 people who are determined rather than 500 who have Jesus way down the list on their priorities. Man, that's miserable. And here these people were, they were determined. So they get there, after carrying their friend, telling how far on a pallet, they get there and there's so many people they can't get to him. Well, boys, we tried. Let's just go back to the house and we'll pray about this. That is not what they did, Henry. They began to look around saying, all right, this way is blocked. Let's find another way. So all those houses had steps on the outside, goes up to the roof. So they just took their friend, carried him up on the roof. Now Jesus is down there in the house and there's people scattered all around in the seat. How are we going to get our friend to him? I got an idea. We're going to, literally the Bible says they unroofed the roof. Now here they are. They got a pallet. They got to lower down. Jesus is sitting in there teaching God's word. And all of a sudden stuff starts falling, hitting folk in the head. I bet there was an old redneck sitting in there. He said, I told y'all if I come to church, roof would fall. <laughs> Dust. Dust and grass and mud and dirt's falling on people. What do you reckon those people thought? Hey, some of it may have been falling on Jesus. But those old boys were determined. And they got the roof uncovered and they lowered their friend down in there. Now watch this. Jesus sees the faith of determined people. Now contrast this with those that we just talked about a little while ago. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus see about those who are condemned in his presence? What does he see? He sees their faults. He sees their faults. But those who are determined, what does he see? He sees their faith. Can I tell you there's a big difference? If you have been to Jesus for the cleansing power, if you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, when He looks at you, He sees your faith. You're determined. But I can tell you, if He's seeing your faults, you've never been born again. Because when you've been born again, get this, He puts sin as far as what? East is from the west. He casts it behind His back. He buries it at the bottom of the sea. The Bible says he remembers them no more. So that's a good deal right there, you hear me? It's a good deal. So people who are determined, watch me. Don't tell me that you're walking with Jesus and you let every little thing come between you and being obedient to him probably seeing your faults rather than your faith. But he looked at them, notice what the Bible says. I'm not making this up. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in verse number 5, Jesus, what's the next words? Seeing their faith. So when he looks at you, what does he see? Does he see a big old spiritual wimp? that can't even make it to church on a consistent basis because you have no more determination to follow him than the man in the moon? Does he see your faults? Does he see your faith? Check this out. He sees their faith, and because of their faith, they receive his favor. See, the Bible says without faith, it's impossible 
please God. What did it say? Without faith it is what? It is impossible. It's impossible to please God. So because of their faith, they got the pleasure of God's smiling face upon their lives. And what does he do? Well, he takes care of the problem. He forgives the old boy of his sin, his most pressing need, and then in order to prove that he has the authority to forgive that man's sin, he says, now get up and walk. And the old boy got up and walked. Man, there's a delight to be enjoyed. Now check this out, number next. And don't check out on me because i got a little bit more preaching to do here, you see. Just because you filled in the last blank don't mean we're done. It just means I ran out of space on my paper. <laughs> we're going to flip it over and keep going. <laughs> check it out. The delight to be enjoyed, to hear truth discussed, to have needs diagnosed, to see determined people. Thank you for letting me see your determination. Son, that's a delight. And then finally, to see public displays. Public displays of what? Folks who have had an encounter with the Son of God. Check this out. Look in verse number 12 with me. Verse number 12 is so full. Soon as Jesus told him to pick up your pallet and go home. Interesting. Here's this word home in verse 11 and it's home in verse number 1. Again, we see Mark doing typical Markan type of stuff. Bracketing in a section with one word. Now look what he says in verse 12. And he got up and immediately picked up his pallet and went out, look at this, in the sight of everyone. <laughs> in the sight of everyone. Yeah, I don't know if there's anything as a, as a secret disciple. Son, when you've been born again, you want folk to know it. You won't make any excuses. There'll be no qualms in your life about following him in believer's baptism because you're saying, I want to put my faith on public display. And that's what baptism is. God does things in somebody's life, they want everybody to know it. And everybody can see it. And can I say to you, it's a delight. Hey, count me out. I'll go back to the jungle if we quit seeing public displays of God's grace in His people. How dull is that? I'm so grateful to be able to look at folk who are involved in grace and see God on public display in your life. Man, that's so refreshing. Thank you for that. But notice, look at this, look at what, what, what the Bible says. The Bible says He went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed. Now underline that word amazed. We've come across this word three times already in Mark's gospel. This is a different word from the ones that we've been looking at. You remember in chapter 1 when he cast out the demon, they were amazed. That, that, that meant they were struck. Something struck them. Something slapped them in the face. The truth did. This word is not the same word. This word is the word from which we get our English word ecstasy. Ecstasy. It's the elision of two Greek words which means to stand out. The Ritchie translation of this word is to be outstanding. Outstanding. And what it refers to is this. You may, you may want to write this down. It means to experience something which is outside the realm and routine of normal sensory perception. Let me say it again. It's to experience something that is outside the realm and routine 
of normal sensory perception. Here's another Richie translation. It blows your mind. There's nothing that you can compare it to. I've never encountered anything like this before, and I really don't know how to process it. I'm in sensory overload. My eyes are telling my brain something that my brain can't comprehend. My ears are hearing something that's outside the routine and flow of what they normally hear, and my brain can't process it. I am feeling something that I have never felt before, and I don't know what to do with it because I have no standard of comparison. You see, that's what happens when you live in the presence of Jesus. When He is at home, I promise you, your senses are having difficulty taking it all in. And here these people were. Bible translates it, New American, Trans New American Standard translates it as they were amazed. You see, that's a delight. That's ecstasy. That's to stand outside the routine. God help us never to be content to live within the boundaries of what's traditional and routine and expected. Because I promise you, when the Son of God enters in and when He's at home, first thing He does is begin to blow your mind. And your senses just can't comprehend it all. Well, when Jesus is at home, hear me, there's a danger to avoid, but there's also a delight to be enjoyed. Public displays that can't be explained in any other logical or sensory fashion except to say, this is outside the scope of the normal. And it can only be explained because the one who is God, the one who has the authority to forgive sins, has been in our presence and he's done something in this place that blows our mind. Have you ever had that encounter with Jesus Christ. If not, I ask you today to come home and allow him to blow your mind. Would you stand with me please? Father in heaven, thank you that you are the type of God who does exceedingly above all that we're able to ask or think or comprehend. God, may we never get to the point to where we have caused you to fit into that small space of our cranial capacity. You are so great until we'll never be able to comprehend fully. And I pray, God, that is what will be routine in our lives because you are at home. May we live in a constant state of ecstasy as these people did having our minds blown because our senses are just too frail to take in what we're hearing and what we're seeing and what we're experiencing. And God, may we constantly see the public demonstrations and displays of your grace and glory in our midst. So I pray for those who are here today. Lord, they need to have a life-changing